0: Well hello everyone, we've been in a series here on God's standard for us, the Sermon on the Mount, and we've seen that our relationship with God cannot be separated from our relationship with man. We see that at the beginning of the sermon that Christ gave here to his disciples in Matthew 5, where he talks about uh, blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and so on and so forth, showing that our relationship with other people is very, very important. And then we saw also that he will only forgive us if we forgive others, in chapter 6, verse 14 through 15. So, we cannot separate our attitude and our feeling about our relationship with God from our relationship with mankind. This is something that might be startling to us in a way because we like to think of ourselves in a certain way in our relationship with God, and men are a problem to us sometimes. But God shows here that our relationship with men simply cannot be uh, separated from that relationship with God. And we're going to see more of that now, a little bit different angle, but more of the same principle here, as we go into Matthew 7 to conclude this particular series. So let's move into Matthew 7 now in verse 1, where he says, Judge not that you be not judged. So he comes right out and says that our judgment of others as human beings is going to be tied together with his judgment of us. And he goes ahead and says that in plain, straightforward language in verse 2. For with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. That should be a very frightening little bit of Scripture for us to ponder. And with what measure you meet out, it shall be measured to you again. So whatever we give to others is going to be given to us. However we judge them, we will be judged. Now, the word here in the Greek is krino, K-R-I-N-O, number 2919 in your Strong's. And it has often been said that this word means condemn not, that you be not condemned. That's partially right and partially wrong, actually. Uh, The actual Strong's definition is properly, that is, the real meaning of the word is to distinguish or decide. By implication, then, it is to try, to condemn, or punish. So distinguishing or deciding is the actual proper definition of this word, but it has an overriding implication to condemn or to punish or to try with the attitude in mind of condemning or punishing. And the context has a lot to do with exactly how the word is meant to be in that particular spot. Uh, I think the implication here in 7, 1, and 2 of Matthew is certainly correct. We cannot help sometimes but distinguish or decide when a matter comes to us, whether it be a doctrinal matter or a judgment that has to be made as to whether someone did what was right or what was wrong, um, the proper de- definition of this to distinguish or decide comes into play often. And I want to compare Matthew 7, verse 1, with, with John 7, John 7, and verse 24, because Christ uses the very same word here, krino, in the Greek. Chapter 7, verse 24. Well, let's pick up the uh, context first. The Jews came and were condemning him for healing on the Sabbath, and he says, Well, you circumcise on the Sabbath. Um, and then he says in verse 24, Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. So he's telling them, and I think a principle for us is that we are to judge righteous judgment. And he does use the word kreno again. And Its proper definition is to decide or to distinguish. And he adds the word righteous here, (coughs) which means that we have to judge or discern or distinguish or decide righteously. So the context indicates whether the implication of condemnation is involved or not though this word certainly bears that implication, when you put the word righteous in front of it, then he's saying make righteous decisions, make righteous judgments. So we have to judge certain things sometimes, and Paul certainly judged what was going on uh, in the Corinthian church when the man was uh, sinning, breaking God's laws in in, uh, regards to marriage and sex. He made a righteous judgment from afar off. But what Christ is telling us back here in Matthew 7 is to be very, very careful in whatever judgments we might make toward anyone and everyone because God himself will judge us according to how we judge others. And I think the implication here is in the condemnation or punishment or trying for the sake of condemning. That is implied in this context, and he brings that out by showing he means that implication in verse 2, or shows he means that implication in verse 2 by saying that we will be judged just as we judge others. So here again, you can't separate your judgment or how God might judge you from mankind. Our relationship with man and how we treat other men is exactly how God is going to judge us. Scary, but in the absolute, I think, in a way, um, uninterpretable way, that this is put by Jesus Christ. It's just straightforward. Now I have here in front of me a little cartoon my wife wrapped in tape to preserve. She carries in her Bible. And I used this, oh, I don't know, several years ago, probably in another sermon, but I I thought it would fit in here very well. It happened to fall out, and I saw it when I was going through one of the other um, sermons in this series. But this is a Peanuts cartoon, and Linus, Linus is sitting here with his blanket up to his ear and his thumb in his mouth, and Lucy's sitting beside him. And Linus says, why are you always so anxious to criticize me? And Lucy says, I just think I have a knack for seeing other people's faults. And he throws his blanket down and raises his arms and says, what about your own faults? And she spreads her arms in bewilderment at why he can't understand and says, I have a knack for overlooking them. And I think that is a good one to tape and put in the Bible and carry around to remind ourselves once in a while that... It is real easy to look at someone else and see their faults, and it is certainly so easy to diminish ours, set them aside, ignore them, um, or overlook them in whatever way so that we don't have to deal with them. But that's not what Christ tells us here. Now let's go to James 4 for a moment. James 4 and... I want verse 11, James 4, and verse 11. He's here talking about how God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble and tells us to submit to God. And verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the eternal, and he shall lift you up. Speak not evil one of another, brethren. We covered quite a bit of this in this series and in a different series I did on the Days of Unleavened Bread, about the tongue. But here's a scripture I don't think we use there. There are many, many of them I didn't use. But James is telling the church, Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaks evil of his brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. In other words the law of God is what we live by. And you have a brother in the church who is trying to live by God's law, trying to do it to the best he understands, the best he interprets that law, and who are we to judge him and how he is keeping that law? We need to be very, very careful that we don't speak evil of him. Because he's equating it to saying, well, that man is doing what he understands of the law, and if you then judge him, you're judging the law itself. And you're setting you're sitting back as a judge then, and you're not a doer of the law yourself, but a judge. And we so easily appoint ourselves judges, don't we? We see this person approaching the Sabbath in a certain way, we see someone approaching various doctrines in a certain way, and it's very easy for us to be condemnative of them, very easy to make a judgment on their understanding, and we're going to see more of that as we go on, and in a sermon on the Sabbath, uh, specifically, we'll get into that as well, very shortly, He goes on to say, verse 12, there is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you that judges another? God is our judge. And we need to be very, very careful in condemning someone else and tying this back to Matthew 7, verse 1. How we treat others is how we will be judged. James is saying the same thing here in a little little bit different way. It's easy to sit back and analyze others and perhaps condemn what they're doing. It's hard for us to live up to the things that Christ tells us right here in the Sermon on the Mount as well as other places. What we do with our mouths is very, very critical. Our attitudes of mind and the things we say about each other is very critical to our judgment, our eternal judgment. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians 4. 1 Corinthians 4. Um, I'll begin in verse 1. Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yes, I judge not my own self. We have to be careful. Sometimes we even condemn ourselves, put ourselves down uh, in, a, in a wrong way. God judges righteous judgment. God reads the heart. And it's not wrong for us to analyze our heart and our mind and our emotions and see where we're wrong. In fact, we should do that. But some people put themselves down continually in a way that is unhelpful. Uh don't condemn yourself, in other words, entirely. That's God's judgment. And He's probably more merciful than we are. And how we treat others is going to be how we are judged, not how we analyze ourselves. So Paul says, It doesn't really matter to me. It's a very small thing that I should be judged of you. I don't care what you think about me, in one sense. Because God is the one who gives life and takes life. And what you think of how I do something, or how I am, um, is neither here nor there, because God is the only one that can give life. You can't. Verse 4, For I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified. But he that judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time, until the Lord comes. You can't condemn someone. People do that with Herbert Armstrong. They condemn him as a false prophet and say he's not going to be in the kingdom of God, I guess. And that he led so many people astray. Well, how can we allow ourselves to get into that kind of an attitude about any human being? Because we don't know how God is thinking about that person we look at them and make up our mind and become very critical and negative about a lot of different people if we're not very careful. But Paul says, let it go. Don't make up your mind. Don't pigeonhole somebody. Don't throw them away because God will judge. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the time Christ returns. And that's what he says next. Until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness, the things you don't know, I don't know, nobody knows, but he knows, and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. And then shall every man have praise of God. So if we've repented, no matter what we've been and are, if we have repented and are repenting, and God judges us uh, worthy to be in his kingdom, and changes us, it's not going to make a better difference what anybody else thought. It doesn't make any difference what we think of Judas, or Solomon, or Herbert Armstrong, or Billy Graham, or anybody else. It's up to God. So we need to be very, very careful in getting uh, into a critical, negative, condemning attitude. Because we are risking our eternal life by our attitude. It doesn't make any difference. Can we understand this? It doesn't make any difference what you did, I did, Herbert Armstrong did, or anybody else did. It doesn't make any difference in terms of our judgment because God is the one who will decide whether they live or die. And we have many, many scriptures, which indicate that we had better be very, very, very careful in getting into critical attitudes, uh, calling another man foolish or a fool, or being angry without a cause in the same very context in Matthew 5 and 6, 7. He makes it very clear, we had better be very, very careful. Now, I want to continue with some things Paul has to say about this general topic. And let's go to Romans 14. Romans 14. And beginning in verse 1. Here he says, Him that is weak in the faith receive you, but not to doubtful disputations, not to arguing with them, not to arguing perhaps against them or about them, not condemning them as being weak, Perhaps there are some who are weak in certain areas. Now, he uses an example here. For one believes that he may eat all things. Another who is weak eats herbs. Now, we're not talking about clean and unclean here. We already know the Bible says we're not to eat all animals. The Bible does say we can eat animals. Jesus Christ ate animals when he was here on the earth. When he went to uh, see Abraham, he had the fatted calf. So some people feel that we should not eat meat, Uh, they feel that the original intent of God was not for human beings to eat meat, but if that was the intent, that intent changed and God even pointed out which animals we can eat and cannot eat, and you can find New Testament examples that show it's okay to eat certain animals and not to eat other animals. So Paul makes it clear here, and we'll see later on he, in another chapter, that he talks about eating meat and that it's okay. But there was a contention, and there is a contention among some today who say we should be vegetarian. Now, Paul says, one believes he may eat all things, meat and vegetables. Another who is weak eats herbs. So the contrast here is between someone who eats just vegetables and someone who has meat in his diet. Now, I'll grant you, we probably as Americans eat too much meat. Too much is the key, though, not whether we should eat it at all. Verse 3. Let not him that eats despise him that eats not. Speaking of meat here. And let not him which eats not judge him that eats, for God has received him. Now, this is an optional matter. See, unclean meat, is not an option. But it is an option whether we eat meat or just vegetables, just herbs. We can be a vegetarian if we so choose, or we can eat meat if we so choose. And he says, don't judge each other on this. Now, I have seen people in the church, and more recently, who are vegetarian, and they're constantly condemning those who eat meat. But they cannot show scripturally that you're not supposed to eat meat. And I can show you in scripture, and well before this is over, this sermon, that you can eat meat from the New Testament. Even meat offered to idols. Verse 4, Who are you that you judge another man's servant? The person who only eats vegetables is God's servant. The person who eats vegetables and meat is also God's servant. And since this is an optional matter, why should we make a judgment against one who chooses one way or the other? Who are you that judges another man's servant? That is a huge principle. We answer to God, ultimately. To his own master, see, he stands or falls. Yes, he shall be held up, for God is able to make him stand. Now he's implying overall here that someone who just eats herbs and does not eat meat is weak in the faith. Understand that. The meat eater is not the one who is weak in the faith here. It's the one who says you can't eat meat. So it says... If he's weak, receive him. But don't fight and argue over it. Verse 5, he uses a little different example. One man esteems one day above another, another esteems every day alike. Some have used this to say that you can keep Sunday or Saturday or Wednesday or Friday. It doesn't matter which day is the Sabbath. But that's not what it's talking about. This is, again, like the unclean. Sunday worship was not an issue here. They were all keeping the Sabbath. So, the Sabbath is not optional. It is the sign between God and his people. So, this is talking about some other days. Paul does not explain specifically. Let's read on, though. Verse 6, He that regards the day regards it to the Lord, and he that regards not the day to the Lord, he does not regard it. So, perhaps this is talking about something like Purim, or the fast of the fifth and the seventh months, and so on, of Zechariah. Uh, Some esteem those important, some don't. Uh, There's no command to keep those fasts. They're mentioned in the Bible, but they're not commanded assemblies, or holy convocations, or any such thing. Or perhaps this may have had some reference to some of the things that the Gentiles were keeping. They may have had some special days. Today we have Thanksgiving, 4th of July, various things that are national holidays uh, that are not in the Bible, and some people feel that they can be kept, other people feel they're inappropriate. So one man esteems Thanksgiving, another man does not hold it in esteem at all. But we shouldn't be judging one another on such a thing. The holy days of God and his Sabbath are simply not optional. So Paul cannot be referring to that here. Those things are commanded. This is something that, again, is an optional thing. Now he gets back to the subject of eating uh, meats or vegetarianism, which is his overall subject here. Uh, End of verse 6. He that eats, eats to the eternal, for he gives God thanks, and he that eats not to the Lord, he eats not and gives God thanks. So, the fellow in his house who is a vegetarian gives God thanks for the food that is provided for him, and the man who eats in his house and eats meat and vegetables, or just meat, whatever he eats, he also gives a prayer of thanks to God. And as we'll see, um, this is not something that we ought to be judging or condemning one other in. There are many things that are optional, and... Different people have different tastes, different attitudes, different ideas about certain things. But it's easy for us to become self-righteous and say, my way of looking at it is the best way, and your way of looking at it is wrong. You may, neither of you be actually wrong. Uh, The person who says that you can only be a vegetarian actually is wrong. He's simply weak in the faith and doesn't understand. But since he doesn't understand, Paul is telling us here how to deal with someone who doesn't understand a certain area. And this could have to do with a lot of different applications, a lot of different doctrines or teachings. Verse 8, for whether we live, we live to the eternal, and whether we die, we die to the eternal. Whether we live, therefore, or die, we are the eternals. So we belong to him. We don't belong to each other in the overall sense. He's the one who makes the judgments. For to this end, Christ both died and rose and revived, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. He lived, he also went through death. And he is the God of those who are dead, and he will judge them. They're not dead and lost, because he died and rose. And we who are alive. He is also our judge, because judgment is now on the house of spiritual Israel upon us. So then he gets back to his theme that he's harping on here in verse 10. But why do you judge your brother? Implication, condemn again. Or why do you set it not, your brother? Set him aside. Uh, Say he's unclean or unsanctified or not as good as you. Or holier, and why are we holier than thou, as Isaiah put it. For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The whole subject here is how we treat one another. He is bringing out the principle that Christ used in Matthew 7, 1 and, verse, uh, 7, 1 and 2. Verse 11, for it is written, As I live, says the Eternal, for swearing by his own life, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Not of Herbert Armstrong, not of Solomon, not of Judas, not of Hitler, not of anybody else. We will give account only for ourselves. Conclusion, verse 13. Let us not therefore judge one another any more. Now we may have done it in the past, but we should repent of that and not do it any But judge this rather. See, now now we're going to judging righteous judgment. Let's come to a right decision here. And the right decision is that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. Be very, very careful. Because if we offend the little one, Matthew 18, we're in danger of great judgment against ourselves. Little one, here he's talking about someone who is weak and doesn't understand as we shall see. Be very careful about stumbling blocks. Verse 4, 14. I know and am persuaded by the Lord Jesus that there is nothing uh, common or unclean of itself, speaking of those things that are clean, but to him that esteems anything to be common, unclean, bad food, not food, to him it is unclean. It's a matter of conscience. We'll see a little later on right here in this chapter. So, some people may judge meat, I mean clean meat, that God himself says is clean and can be eaten, they may judge that not fit to eat. But if they judge it that way, it becomes a matter of conscience. Let's go on, we'll see that. But if your brother be grieved with your food, and that's the right translation here, now walk you not in love. Destroy not him with your food for whom Christ died. Now, he's not talking about just any food here. He does mention flesh down here in in another verse. So it is not just food in general, uh, but flesh that is the subject. He mentions herbs at the first of the chapter, he mentions flesh at the end of the chapter. But this whole subject of food, see, is something we shouldn't be judging one another on. Specifically, here, Vegetables or meat, but then he uses the general term for food as well. Let not then your good be evil spoken of. If you can eat meat with a clean conscience, don't let your good be evil spoken of. It's a good thing that you can eat that. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. It's not food in this case, food in general. Food, the, the term meat here means food and drink. We know what drink is. We're not talking about uh, uh, anything specific here in terms of meat or vegetables, but meat and drink in general, food in general. But righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. See, these are the weight here matters. These are important things. Are we going to judge somebody by what they do, Or will they judge us by what we do in terms of how we eat or our food? And God says that isn't what the kingdom of God is all about. Now, we're supposed to eat right. We're supposed to drink right. And there are many, many scriptures showing us what we, well, in terms of alcohol, drinking, uh, how much we should drink, what types of, of drink, whether it be wine or strong drink or whatever. Those things are okay. But, what somebody thinks about drinking, whether we do or do not, is not what the kingdom of God is all about. It's about judgment, yes. It's about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit and not condemning and negative criticism. The more important things he points out here. So Why should we lose our spot in God's kingdom? Because somebody else eats a certain way, or drinks a certain way, and we condemn them for it. For he that in these things serves Christ is acceptable to God, and approved of men. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace, and things wherewith one may edify another. In other words, let's accentuate the positive again. Philippians 4 verse 8 those things that are positive and good and true and, and right. For food, destroy not the work of God. Don't destroy one another. We are individually the work of God. This isn't speaking of the church as a whole, although I suppose it could split the church and divide it. But the work of God is being done in us as individuals, individual salvation and we are not to destroy the work of God in any person. All things indeed are pure. Everything that the Bible says we can have, we can have. But it is evil for that man who eats with offense. It is good neither to eat flesh, nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby your brother stumbles, or is offended, or is made weak. So, he says, if you have a weak brother who only believes that we should eat vegetables, we should be very, very careful about eating meat, especially around him. Or if he has come out of a different religion and has been taught all his life that alcohol is wrong, then we shouldn't drink around him if it's going to offend him. Now Some people simply have come to understand intellectually that they can drink wine, but emotionally they haven't bridged that yet, and it might not offend them because they understand it's not a sin for you to drink it, but they have not come to the point in their conscience where they can drink it yet. So for you to drink it is not a sin, but for them to drink it with a bad conscience is sin, until they get that conscience educated. And he's warning us to be very, very careful with eating meat or drinking wine or any other thing that would cause our brother to stumble or cause him to be offended or is made weak. Now, you see, these are all optional things. He doesn't say it's good not to eat food. Here he does say flesh in particular because we have to eat food or die. And if we die from not eating, then that's a form of suicide, of self-killing, the Sabbath. If it offends somebody, I keep the Sabbath. Um, I'm not going to quit keeping the Sabbath because it offends them. Because that's something that is commanded of me. But I am not commanded to eat meat. I am not commanded to drink wine. Those are optional things. And if someone is a vegetarian or a a teetotaler and doesn't drink alcohol, then I need to be very careful not to exercise my option to have those things in his presence, or if he knows I'm doing it. And Paul makes a very, very strong statement along these lines in another chapter, which we're going to, to examine in a moment. Have you faith? Verse 22, have it to yourself before God. Happy is he that condemns not himself in that thing which he allows. Now Paul's saying here very clearly that it's okay to eat flesh or to drink wine. Meat and wine are okay. And if you can do it in faith, it's not a problem. And happy is he that condemns not himself in that thing which he allows. It's an optional thing. If your conscience allows you to do it, it's fine and you're happy with that. Verse 23, And he that doubts, or is not assured, or puts a difference between meats, my margin says, is damned if he eat meat, because he eats not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So be very, very careful with that person, because if his conscience is not fully educated yet, and he's still going by other things that he's learned in the past, and we cause him to stumble, and maybe we even encourage him into eating something that his conscience bothers him to do, then it's sin to him. And what are the wages of sin? Death. Now, are we willing to alter our conduct for the sake of someone else? That's what Paul is saying here. For some of us, that would be very, very difficult to give up meat or wine Just because somebody doesn't understand and because they're a little weak in the faith? How much do we love? How do people know we're the disciples of Christ? By whether we love each other, as he said there in the last chapters of John. Fifteen, I think that one is. Sounds to me from reading this, we need to be very, very careful and be willing to alter what we do for the sake of others. Not just poo-poo them, not put them down, or say, ah, he just doesn't understand, and go ahead and offend him or cause him to stumble. We need to be very, very circumspect. With that in mind, let's go to 1 Corinthians 8. This is another subject that um, has been misunderstood quite a bit. Romans 14 has been misunderstood by many and misapplied, thinking it had to do with clean and unclean. But that's, again, simply not optional. Now here's another optional thing. 1 Corinthians 8. Now is touching things offered to idols? So that is the subject that is introduced here. Things offered to idols. In a pagan temple. There in Ephesus they had the Temple of Diana. Now, can you, or could you, or could you now go to Rome or Greece or somewhere where they have an idol uh, set up, maybe a Buddhist temple or somewhere, and they sacrifice, well, I guess in Buddha they wouldn't uh, sacrifice animals, but you get the point, a, a pagan temple of some kind somewhere, and they offer a cow or a sheep or a goat on that altar, and then they sell it right there in the temple for people to eat. You can go in and have lunch, and maybe it's cheaper than it would be down the street because this isn't uh, used in the temple worship, and they want to give you a good deal on lunch so that you eat all that meat and it doesn't spoil. Whatever is behind it, uh, a lot of people apparently went to the pagan temples to eat meat. So that's the subject that Paul is talking about here. It's not clean and unclean again. This is talking very clearly about things offered to idols. Now, here's his statement. Now, as touching things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. We all have knowledge, one way or another. And then he gives a caution here. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies, or builds up. Knowledge puffs up because of vanity, because of thinking our mind is greater than someone else's mind, and we know better than they know, and therefore it tends to puff us up and make us vain and prideful. But love builds up others. So an overall statement here is the way he's going to handle this subject is to be sure that we are building up and helping others. And you can apply this again to many different subjects. It's the principle I want out of here. Verse 2, And if any man think that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. Now, we may assess ourselves and think we have a lot of knowledge, or we're pretty smart, or we're very well educated. But Paul says, yeah, you may have a certain amount of knowledge, but you don't know as much as you ought to know. You're not as bright as you think you are, perhaps. And if we're vain and prideful about what we know, then we're totally wrong, and we really don't know what we ought to know. We should not let knowledge puff us up. We should be humble and resist the holier-than-thou attitude, or better-than-thou, or smarter-than-thou. Verse 3, But if any man love God, the same is known of him. Now, how do we know if we love God? 1 John 5, 3, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. So, if we truly are following God, God will know us. We don't have to worry about showing off in front of others with our great knowledge. So, Paul is saying here as he approaches this subject, let's be very humble, let's be very careful about what we think we know and how bright we think we are. Verse 4, And, well, to go back to Matthew 7, verses 1 and 2, do we think we're so bright and so right and so smart that we can condemn, try, and put down others? That's part of the attitude that Paul is talking about here that Christ addressed. Verse 4, now he gets to the subject itself. As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world. Now, let's understand that first. An idol is nothing. It's sitting there, standing there. It doesn't speak. It doesn't act. It's probably dedicated to Satan. It's in a pagan temple. Okay? That's the scene he is describing here. Very quickly, let's flash back to Jeremiah 10. Jeremiah 10. This same principle is addressed back here. Jeremiah 10. and Verse 2. Thus says the Eternal, Learn not the way of the heathen, and be not dismayed at the signs of the heaven, for the heathen are dismayed at them, for the customs of the people are vain, and then it goes on to describe a Christmas tree here. It says, we're not to learn the way of the heathen. We're not to go get a Christmas tree out of the forest and deck it with silver and gold and fasten it with nails and hammers that it move not. Verse 5, they are upright as the palm tree. Christmas tree is set in a holder and held straight up. But speak not. Did you ever have a Christmas tree talk to you? They must needs be born because they cannot go. They don't have legs. They're not alive. Be not afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither also is it in them to do good. They're just things. They're just trees. They're being put to a pagan use, and they're, they can't hurt you. But they can't do any good either. And since they're dedicated to a pagan use, God says, don't do it don't learn the way of the heathen. Now, in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, we have a pagan temple here, and Paul is talking to the Corinthian church. These are people who have come out of the world and become converted to God's way, been transformed to his way of thinking, and some of them are eating meat offered to idols in pagan temples, dedicated not to God, as we understand, but to Satan. Inanimate objects as well. Now, would that bother some of us to go sit down with a leering idol up on a pedestal in front of us and eat meat in a pagan temple? Yes, it would bother some horribly. Some people don't like to meet in any kind of a church building, even if it doesn't have the crucifixes in it. But what if it does have a crucifix? And you're there for a potluck and maybe it gets into a little bit different realm when you go there to worship God and you're uh, sitting there listening to a sermon and you've got a cross in front of you or a christmas tree sitting there uh, I I would be uncomfortable I wouldn't like it wouldn't I wouldn't want to I I'm uncomfortable around a christmas tree period but I don't worry about it they can't hurt me Some people don't want to meet in a Masonic temple at all because of the pagan overtones that are there well, if that offends, perhaps we should not meet there, because it will bother some people. And I, for one, moved a church out of a Masonic temple in the L.A. Basin to a women's garden club. Changed the El Monte Church to the Glendora Church for that very reason. Uh, partly because of the feel of the place, and partly because they simply called it the Temp Cemetery, or the coffin. It was sort of shaped like a coffin, it was a morose place with no windows and just a very poor hall. But I just didn't feel that was the best place for us to meet that we could probably do better. But we need to understand here that an idol is nothing in the world. And you can see from the slant of that that Paul is about to say it's okay to eat meat in a pagan idol and even meat that has been offered to An idol is okay, because it didn't hurt the meat. It's still beef, it's still sheep, it's still goat, it's still clean meat. And offering it to the idol by a pagan did not change that meat. It's not a spiritual problem as long as you understand things the way Paul understood them. But there were people who were weak and didn't like that. An idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other God but one. So it doesn't change the meat. If it was offered to an idol, there's only one God. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, and Satan is even there, but he's not God. But to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Those are the only two that matter. The leering idol on the pedestal doesn't matter. Howbeit, there is not in every man that knowledge. No one comprehends that there aren't a lot of gods around. And they worry about this God, that God, and the other God. And Paul is saying, we only have to worry about two. And if we're doing what they say, the fact that somebody held this meat up and offered it to an idol doesn't change that meat whatsoever because that is not a real God. There are only two. Verse 7. Howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge. No one. Gras- there are a lot of people who don't grasp or understand that or are not strong enough and their weak conscience, or their worry about these other gods, for some with conscience of the, conscience of the idol, to this hour eateth the thing offered to an idol. They eat it as if it was offered to a god, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But meat condemns us not to god, that is, meat offered to an idol, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. Now there, again, flashing back, answers your question about vegetarianism or eating meat. In terms of Paul's understanding, and this was put in the Bible by God, it is okay to to eat meat and even meat that is offered to an idol he says we're not any better off and we're not any the worse off spiritually speaking whether we eat meat offered to an idol or meat that has never been offered to an idol we go in and it's been offered to an idol it means nothing because there really is no other god but one or two speaking of Christ as well those are the only gods there are so we can take that same meat that has been offered to a leering, pagan idol, with Satan behind it all along, and we can pray a prayer and give thanks to God for that meat, and we can eat it. But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block block to them that are weak. Here's the point. It gets right back to Matthew 7, 1. Be very, very careful what judgments you make and how you treat other people. For if any man see you which have knowledge, sit at meat in the idol's temple, and this is uh, flesh, not just food in general, but food in general would be okay too if they offered carrots to the idol. wouldn't hurt to eat the carrot. Does't make it unclean because that's not really a God. Shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through your knowledge shall your weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you sin so against the brethren, and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. So, if someone really still felt, and they had not learned that it's okay to drink wine, or to eat meat, or to eat meat offered to an idol... And you put a stumbling block in him, in front of him, by doing that which he thinks is wrong, and offend him, we're sinning against Christ. That's what he says here in so many words. Wherefore, here's the conclusion of the whole matter. If meat, and in this case, meat offered to an idol, make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world stands. And maybe he's making a general statement here. If any meat, not just that offered to idol. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world stands, lest I make my brother to offend. Now, if that was Paul's judgment on this matter, which Christ included in the Bible, and the Father in heaven approved, Doesn't it echo the words of Christ from Matthew 7-1 about not condemning, not putting down by implication someone else for something they do, which we think might be wrong? We had better be very, very careful, very, very tender toward each other and toward those that we might feel are weak and may very well indeed be weak. If they don't understand it's all right to eat meat, not just vegetables. Or if we don't have any idols' temples around that serve meat for lunch that they've offered to the idol that I know of. But if that were the occasion, we would have to be very, very careful, even though we understood it was all right for us to eat it. And that didn't, wasn't a sin. It could be a sin from someone who did not understand conscientiously that it was all right. So we cannot separate Here again, in principle, our relationship with man from our relationship with God. Because they are completely joined together. Let's see that again in Matthew 25. Matthew 25, and here I want to start in verse 34. Then shall the king say, Matthew 25, verse 34. Then shall the king say to them on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Now we might say, We never saw you. How could this apply to us? What do you mean? Verse 37. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered and fed you, or thirsty and gave you drink? People who lived in this age, who lived in the ages after Christ walked the earth, who never saw him. How can they say this? When saw we you sick or in prison and came to you? And the king shall answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, inasmuch as you have done it to one of the least of these my brothers, you have done it to me. We cannot treat Christ one way and our fellow man, our brothers in the church, another way. We will be judged on how we judge them. We will be treated as we treated them. Now I think we would all probably be like Abraham was when Christ came walking across, and Abraham was sitting there under the shade of the tree in the middle of the day, and boy, did he jump up. He got a fatted calf and had Sarah prepare it. Let's take care of these visitors. The book of Jasher even says that he gave them cold cuts from animals who were already butchered, sheep and goats, while the fatted calf was being prepared. Whether that was the actual way it was done, I don't know. But that's the historical record there. And uh, if it was Christ who came to our door, you know, people in the Bible fell on their face when an angel or Christ appeared. They became very, very feared, fearful and weak and trembling and uh, sick of themselves because they knew they were in the presence of righteousness. And I imagine any one of us would just scramble to do anything he could or we could to take care of Christ if he appeared at our door. But he says here, we'll be in his kingdom because we treated people like we would treat him if he were here. So he says the way you treated those people is the way I'm going to judge you because you're doing it to me if if you treated them nice. But notice verse 41, then shall he say also to them on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, for I was hungry and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you took me not in, naked and you clothed me not, sick and in prison and you visited me not. Then shall they also answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister and serve you. We don't remember you being around. Then shall he answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, inasmuch as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. This nails down the principle I've been trying to bring about or trying to get across, is that we cannot separate our relationship with God from our relationship with man. They become one and the same. We will be judged exactly as we judge others. So if we condemn others, we will be condemned. That's just bottom line, and it can't be stated any more clearly than what we've been reading. But we have to be tender toward people. I'm not going to go into the whole book of Philemon, but you remember the story, I'm sure, where Paul was very right in what he had to say to Philemon, but he knew Philemon would not take it from him. And he was so very, very tactful and diplomatic and gentle and trying to explain to Philemon what he would like for him to do, to release that slave and send him to him as a servant to Paul as a helper to Paul. That's another good example about not offending. He was very tactful, very diplomatic, very gentle. Some people will say, well, I'm straight up front. If it offends, it offends. That's just the way I am. Well, we're to be transformed. We're to be converted. We're to change. We're not just to say, well, that's just the way I am and go on about our business and not care who that offends or who that hurts or how what our approach and the way we handle something offended you just say well that's the way i am and dismiss the issue well it's fine to be upfront it's fine to let people know where they stand in a right way but we're to learn the qualities of tactfulness and diplom- diplomacy and gentleness and meekness and kindness Those things we need to learn. It's okay to be up front. It's okay to be straight with people. But the attitude and the manner we go about it is a critical key. Not to give offense. Don't forget that conversion is change. That's the key word here. Repent and be baptized and you'll enter into the kingdom of God. Be you transformed. Changed from what you are, Romans 12.1. Don't be that way. Don't just say that's the way I am if the way you am is wrong. You have to change that. There's nothing wrong, again, with being straightforward and letting our yes be yes and our no be no. And I'm not saying that we ought to polish boots and, and shine them and so on and be yes men in a wrong way. We shouldn't be. But we need to be very, very careful and learn tact and gentleness and not just be um, mean-spirited, or maybe that's not the word I'm looking for here. Some people are mean-spirited, but uh, just to offhandedly say, well, it doesn't matter, this is the way I am. If they don't like it, they can go fly a kite, jump off a bridge, because that's the way I am. Well, no, let's be different. Let's be straightforward, yes, and let's let our mind be known, but let's do it in a very tactful, diplomatic, gentle, and kind way so that we don't offend a little one and therefore possibly lose our own salvation. Remember that the carnal mind is enmity to God. We want to do it our own way, and it is so easy to run rough, roughshod over others and not care what they think, as long as we are doing what we think is right. Now, we, we might feel it's right. It's okay to sit down in an idol's temple and eat meat. And indeed, Paul says it's okay as long as it doesn't offend your conscience. There's nothing wrong with that because God is God and these inanimate idols mean nothing. Idol is nothing in the world. But don't let your knowledge and your own clear conscience of that good knowledge, pop you up and cause you to cause someone else to sin because he doesn't understand and is weak in the faith. Same way with your meat as opposed to just your carrots. Be careful of other pe- people's feelings and their consciences. Now let's go back to Matthew 7. We sort of got sidetracked here, but I think it is very important that we understand that with what judgment... We judge, we shall be judged. And with what measure we mete it out, it will be measured to us again, whether for good or for evil, as he points out in Matthew 25. And why behold you the mote that is in your brother's eye, but consider not the beam that is in your own eye? Or how will you say to your brother, let me pull out the mote out of your eye, and behold, a beam is in your own eye? You hypocrite! First cast out the beam out of your own eye, And then shall you see clearly to cast out the moat out of your brother's eye. Take care of things at home first. Take care of your own attitude, your own sins. Become the person you ought to be, and then you might be able to help someone else. But it's very hypocritical to try to change them when you yourself are not willing to change. And you will be judged according to how you treat him. Now he changes the subject a little bit. Give not that which is holy to the dogs, neither cast you your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn again, and rend you. Another principle. uh, Let's follow this up in Matthew 15 here for a moment. Matthew 15 and verse 26, because this would seem in a sense like a contradiction uh, to some, but it's really not. Matthew 15 and uh, here's a woman who is crying after him in verse 23. But he answered and said, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, It is not me to take your children, take the children's bread and cast it to the dogs. So he's using the same principle that he used here in Matthew 7:6. Give not that which is holy to the dogs neither cast you your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. We need to be careful with the truth that we have. That is, that we do not allow other people to to cheapen it or to trample it under their feet. We have to be careful who we give it to. Not everybody is ready to use it properly, and they may even turn it against you in some cases, turn and rend you with it. (laughs) So the principle here. Christ was following through with when this Gentile woman came to him. He said, I'm only sent to the house of Israel. I'm not sent to the Gentiles. And uh, she said, verse 27, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from the master's table. She showed a very humble, very contrite, very desirous attitude here. And a desirable attitude. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, Great is your faith, be it unto you, even as you will. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. So he made an exception. Now, he was following the principle that he had given us there in Matthew 7. But when he saw that this woman would not despise, would not trample it, and would not turn and rend him, he did give her that which was good. He did give her an answer. He did heal. So, exceptions can be made. But the principle is we need to be very, very careful with God's truth and how we use it and to whom we give it. Don't allow anyone to cheapen it. Verse 7, Ask, and it shall be given you. Changes the subject here again. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened to you. Notice he uses three different words here. Ask, seek, and knock. He doesn't just say ask, but there is an implication here of really asking, really seeking, really pounding on the door. Uh, For everyone that asks receives, and he that seeks finds, and to him that knocks it shall be opened. Let's follow this up in Proverbs 2. Proverbs 2. And here I want verse 1. My son, if you will receive my words, and hide my commandments with you, hold them inside you, so that you incline your ear to wisdom, and apply your heart to understanding, yes, if you cry after knowledge, and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver, and search for her as for hid treasures, then shall you understand the fear of the eternal, and find the knowledge of God. So it isn't just simply going in getting on your knees and saying, God, I want this. God, I need that. Uh, He shows here that we have to really seek like silver or hidden treasure or whatever. And perhaps that's why he emphasizes it here three times in verse 7 and then repeats it in verse 8 three times again. That you have to really get with it, and the woman that we just talked about, asked, and he ignored her, and said, no, lady, and she asked again, and she asked in a wonderful attitude. Now, he goes on to explain, or what man is there of you, whom if his son asks bread, will he give him a stone, or if he asks a fish, will he give him a serpent, serpent, If you, then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? Now, these aren't uh, Pokemon games or whatever. Uh, This is bread and fish that he uses as an example. Things that our children really need. And in this sense, food. And he does tell us in the Lord's Prayer to ask for our daily bread. And God is willing to give us that, and if we walk by faith, our bread and our drink will be sure. No doubt about it. He is very, very willing to give us of our needs, and especially if we obey him. So he says, we wouldn't turn food away from our children. We might turn certain optional things from them, things that we think would hurt them or aren't good for them. They might want them, but wants are not needs. And God will sometimes give us our wants, but he doesn't guarantee that. He does promise he will give us our needs if we will ask him. And if we will sometimes be persistent about it. Ask, seek, knock. Ask, seek, knock. So he's saying here, I'm more willing to give those things that are good to you than you are to give to your own children. Sometimes we don't think we're getting an answer to our prayers, but God tells us here that that is his attitude, that he is more willing than we are to our own children. We need to be careful and ask within his will, and we need to be careful to ask in the right attitude so that he will see in us such faith he is not even seen in Israel, perhaps, to use his own expression. Verse 12, Therefore, all things whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do you even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This isn't just New Testament teaching that we're to do to others as we would have them do to us. He says this is the law and the prophets. Let's, this is repeated in chapter 22, chapter 22, verse 39, Matthew 22. Uh, verse 39. or Well, let's go to verse 37. Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like to it, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. That's what the law and the prophets were based upon. Go back and look at the law in the Old Testament. You were told to not remove landmarks. That's his land. Don't move the marker over and and gain some land for yourself. If the ox gored, then you're someone or another animal, then that animal had to be taken care of, had to be killed in the case that it gored another human, as I recall it. So all those laws were back there to explain that we are to take care of each other just like we would take care of ourselves. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. If you knock his tooth out, you get your tooth knocked out. If you kill him, they kill you. That's the way the law was set up, so that we might learn this principle. We get to the New Testament, and Christ puts it in these simple words. So the whole law is based on this, and the prophets the same way. Uh, I don't want to go into too many for the sake of time, but let's look at a couple very quickly. Uh, Here in Isaiah 1 is a good place to start. Isaiah 1 and verse 17. Learn to do well. Seek judgment. Relieve the oppressed. Judge the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together. Uh, Well, we don't need that. Uh, The the point I wanted to get there. Uh, Well, verse 19 is part of the thought. If you be willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. So God says here how we treat other people is very, very important. That's in the prophets. Jeremiah 22 Jeremiah 22. And here we'll start in verse 33. No, it won't. It doesn't have that many. I'll read my own writing here. Jeremiah 22. What did I want? Oh, verse 3 it is. Thus says the Eternal Execute you judgment and righteousness. And deliver the spoiled out of the hand of the oppressor, and do no wrong, do no violence to the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, need to shed innocent blood in this place. So it's all about relationships again, isn't it? It's all about the way we treat human beings. Micah 6, verse 8. Micah 6. Jonah Micah, here we are. Matthew 6, verse 8. He has showed you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's Old Testament teaching, chapter 7, verse 18. Who is a God like to you that pardons iniquity and passes by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retains not his anger forever, because he delights in mercy. We have to come to delight in mercy, one of the weightier matters of the law. So it's all, again, about relationships. Uh, Let's pick it up, Zechariah 7. Zechariah 7. Here I want verse 9. Uh, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, Execute true judgment, and show mercy and compassion every man to his brethren. Oppress not the widow, nor the fatherless, the stranger, nor the poor. And let none of you imagine evil against his brother in your heart. There's the spirit of the law. Not just doing evil, but imagining evil against his brother. Chapter 8. Here, verse 16. Chapter 8, verse 16. These are the things that you shall do. Speak you, every man, the truth to his neighbor. Don't lie. Uh, You don't want to be lied to. Don't lie to him. Execute the judgment of truth and peace in your gates. You don't want him to war against you and hurt you? Don't do it to him. Be peaceable. And let none of you imagine evil in your hearts against his neighbor, and love no false oath, for all these are things that I hate. So it's not just the letter back here, but the Spirit as well. Not even imagining imagining evil in your hearts. So, what he's saying here in Matthew 7, and we'll go back there. Matthew 7 uh, is what the law and the prophets were really trying to get across. They seem mechanical, perhaps. They seem harsh to people, but that was the point. Is that however you treat others is the way you're going to be treated. And here he's saying, however you judge others, you will be judged. If you're not forgiving, you won't be forgiven. That's the law and the prophets. And he sums it up here by saying, treat others as you want to be treated. That's the whole message of the old, Old Testament, whether you knew it or not. And he reiterates it and expands it And summarizes it here. So the Old Testament is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. Not just the new. Going on, verse 13. Enter you in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many there be which go in thereat, but narrow, straight, rugged, hard is the gate, and narrow is the way which leads to life, and few there be that find it. Interesting that he puts that right after he said Treat others the way you want to be treated, because that's the way your judgment is going to come. This is a hard saying, and this is a very hard way to live. It's not easy. The Protestants say Christianity easy. Worldwide, it's gotten where they say Christianity is easy. Just love the Lord and sing our hymns, and there's more to it than that. How we treat people is everything. 15. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. That's what happened in the worldwide. Ravening wolves came in, and they began to teach you that things are easy. You don't have to worry about it. You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that brings not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. So he says, you're going to know them, ultimately, by the fruits of what they're doing. And they're leading people away from the kingdom of God by telling you that things are easy. And the way of getting into the kingdom of God is never easy. Through much tribulation enter. Straight is the gate. Narrow is the way whereby by their fruits you shall know them. Anyone that tells you Christianity is easy, you'd better watch out. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father, which is in heaven. There are a lot of people that call on God and say, I'm Christian and Lord, Lord. But that doesn't guarantee entrance into the kingdom of God. There is more to it than that. He that does the will of my Father, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, and in your name cast out devils, and in your name done many wonderful works? And in some cases, God may honor what those people do. They might cast out demons. They might have a certain amount of power along those lines. But are they doing the will of the Father in heaven? Christ said, if they're not against us, they're for us. Don't worry about them. But their eternal judgment is going to come by what they do, and ours as well. Not what we say, but what we do. The Pharisees were hypocrites because they did said one thing and did another. And then will I profess to them, I never knew you. I didn't know you. That doesn't mean he didn't know who they were. Uh, this word here implies intimacy. I never knew you. Depart from you, me, you that work iniquity. Let's follow this up again in 1 Corinthians 8. We've already been to 1 Corinthians 8, but I want to focus on this, uh, this one word, this one verse. 1 Corinthians 8, and here I want verse 3. 1 Corinthians 8, 3. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. So these people said, Lord, Lord... But he said here he didn't know them. So they did not love him according to his definition. They may have had a gooey feeling. They may have had a Protestant approach. But they didn't love God or they would have been known of him. And he says back here that he didn't know them. Well, what does it mean to know the Lord? What does it mean to love him? I together 1 John 5.3 with that. Well, let's see. I'll, wait a minute. There was another verse I wanted to put with that. I think I wrote it down here somewhere. I get so far from my notes, I don't know where I am. 1 John 5.3 is, is one that I wanted here. This is the love of God, that you keep His commandments. So, obviously, they weren't keeping His commandments. They weren't doers. which is what he's emphasizing here. Doesn't do any good to say, yes, yes, and I'm a Christian, and I love the Lord, if you're not doing what he says and following his commandments, because obeying him is the definition of love overall. There are many aspects to love, but that is an overall statement that John makes. This is the love of God that you keep his commandments, and they are not grievous. Matthew 1917 can be tied together with this, Matthew 1917. "If you will enter into life, isn't that what we want? Isn't that what this is all about? Keep the commandments. But people will tell you the commandments are done away. People are sitting worldwide right now being told that, and they're buying it. And they're listening to some false prophets. Now, let's pick it up again in Matthew 7, verse 24. Therefore, whosoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man which built his house upon a rock, or the rock it could be, Christ. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. Is that where our faith is, is in Christ? Do we truly believe him, trust him, and believe him and trust him enough that we're willing to obey him? follow his commandments, even though it is against our nature, and it's not easy. But we have to build it on him and his sayings and what he wishes. And everyone that hears these sayings of mine and does them not shall be likened to a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. So all these things that we've been talking about in this instruction, We have to do, or our house, our spiritual house, is going to be built on sand and it will fall. We have to be very, very careful about our relationships with other men because they do reflect our true relationship with God from His perspective, not our sentimental, emotional feeling about our own relationship with Him. He may have a different view. Matthew 18 and verse 6. Matthew 18 and verse 6. But whoso shall offend one of these little ones, which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and that he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Now does that lay it on us to be careful how we treat one another. Now you might tie in Psalm 119, verse 165 with this. Psalm 119 and verse 165. Here it says, great peace have they which love your law, and nothing shall offend them. So we might take the attitude that if they really love God's law and they're real Christians, anything I do won't offend them anyway. Well, we can't take that approach. Now truly, if someone doesn't believe that they should eat meat, and we do, or not eat meat offered to an idol, and we do, It shouldn't offend them. But if they're weak in the faith, it can offend them. And we need to be very, very careful that we don't eat or offend one of these little ones for whom Christ died. So we can't say, well, you shouldn't be offended and just go ahead and do what we want. Paul said he wouldn't eat meat or drink wine again if it was going to offend someone. It was that critical a matter to him, and he knew his judgment was based on that. Oh, yeah, if they're spiritually immature, nothing will offend them. If they're spiritually immature, they can be offended. And if you see somebody offended, you have to assume that they are weak in the faith. And be careful with them. Not condemn them, but be careful what you do with them. Now, that does not do away with Acts 5.29, where it says to obey God rather than man. If obeying God offends them, that's too bad. Don't do it with a chip on your shoulder. Just humbly, meekly serve God. And if keeping the Sabbath offends them, that's too bad. Don't hold it over their head. Don't uh, be mean about it or mean-spirited about it, but simply obey God. And if you have to go into the fiery furnace or into the lion's den, so what? That's okay. God will take care of you one way or another. Whether you live or die, you are the Eternals. But on things that are optional, that might cause someone who is weak or immature spiritually to stumble, then we should be very careful that we take care of them. And how we treat other men, whether we feed them, clothe them, help them, visit them in prison, or visit them when they're sick, is going to determine whether we are in the kingdom of God or not whether we are doers of these things that Christ is talking about here. We cannot take lightly these absolute, straight-out statements he makes, that we will be judged as we judge, we will be forgiven only if we forgive, we will be in the kingdom of God if we treat others as we wish to be treated. So he says, if you do these things, you will be in the kingdom of God. Verse 28, in closing, And it came to pass, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. He wasn't mealy-mouthed. He wasn't wishy-washy. He laid it out here. He says, this is the way it is, boys and girls. You either do this and be in the kingdom of God, or you fail to do it and you won't be in the kingdom of God. It's just that simple very hard to live, very hard to follow. These are not easy things he talks in here. These are a high standard, a very high standard. But they are the standard which we will be judged by. And therefore, we have to go to him and we have to pray and ask for guidance, help, strength on a daily basis so that we might treat people the way we would wish to treat him if he were here. Because how we treat them reflects our love for Him. And that's just a straight out statement. So you can't have one love for God and a different, or one standard for God that you live and a different standard for men. Because He says the standard that you treat men is the standard that I will treat you. And that is kind of astonishing, really, when you have a lot of people who say it's an easy thing. Just believe. No, you have to do, and that's the way he closes this, and it came across as a great authority, and we should take it that way. So that will be the end then of this series, and we'll go on to other things next time.